Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the equator-straddling podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, taking in some shows in Cambridge, UK. Yes, and me, Dan, recently acquiring a piano down here in Melbourne, Australia. We focus on overlooked sci-fi, horror and fantasy films because nothing says a good time like facial stabbings, maniacal medical experiments and tap-dancing triplets. Hello, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Hello, Conrad. How are you today? I'm not too bad at all. So you have a piano now. Yeah, yeah. We've got a piano. So I mean, I grew up playing piano. I, I did all my exams up to grade eight. Uh, so, but I've never had a piano. Like personally owned a piano since moving out of home. No, because I mean, I imagine that you need quite a big house to have a piano. Yeah, and also pianos are quite expensive. Um, I mean, mm. I guess if I added all the synths that I own uh, together and, and solved them all, <laughs> I could probably afford a piano. But uh, recently, uh, my wife, uh, one of her employees, has um, been trying to get rid of her piano. So we, so, mm. so we got it fairly cheap. Um yeah. And paid for the moving, and it's now in our lounge room. Marvellous. Yeah. Is it tuned, or does it need the attention of a professional tuner? Uh, it definitely needs a tune. Uh, it's mostly in tune. It's about 85 90% in tune. There's one key that okay. sticks as well. The like, middle B-flat sticks. So I can't mm. play anything with that <laughs> note in the key. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I... I Brought out my old uh, classical music, sheet music books, and had a go at trying to play uh, the, the the pieces I used to play. Not not well. I'm very rusty over the years. Uh, yeah. Playing a, a synth that has only two octaves doesn't really keep your uh, dexterity <laughs> in, in check. <laughs> so no, I'd need to play some scales and arpeggios and get uh, get back into it. Yeah. Well, that's exciting, having a piano in the house. It's an upright, I'm guessing. Yes, yes, of course. No, right. I've just got a, a, a full grand just in, in my lounge. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just just a humble upright. But it sounds good. It sounds good. Um, oh. But in the meantime, you have an excursion to London. Yeah, I'm heading into London to catch a show for the first time in quite a while. I'm going Ooh. to see Lucas Hedges in a new adaptation of Brokeback Mountain for the stage. Ah, yes, great. Is that going to be in is it West End? Yeah, it's in Soho, I think. It's, yeah, very ah, exciting. Very nice, very yeah. nice. I didn't even know there was an adaptation of Brokeback Mountain. No, it's, it's entirely new. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I've always wanted to see one of these shows where an actor who I primarily know for being in Hollywood movies has a go at being on stage. I mean... No offence to Lucas Hedges, maybe he's trod the boards for quite some time or even started there, but mm. it's always tickled me the idea of seeing a famous actor on stage. Right. Uh, yes, I have noticed a lot of movies being adapted to stage uh, recently. Yeah, 
It's quite a popular craze. There was one recently. Oh, yeah. I remember Clueless got adapted to stage. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So well, it's a new thing, not? I guess. <laughs> yeah, and there was a really disastrous um, Broadway edition of Spider-Man, wasn't there, that didn't go particularly Oh, yeah. Well. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think the strings <laughs> kept breaking. But, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's dangerous. <laughs> It was. Yeah, by all accounts, lots of injured people. But there we go. Okay. Hopefully there will be no injuries during Broke Back. I'm I'm assuming they will be sort of artistic and suggestive and there won't be any rough and tumble going on oh, on stage. No no we'll tense <laughs> Maybe silhouettes. Well, tense <laughs> and and spitting and yeah, I'm yeah, I'm hoping not just to save our blushes, but we'll see. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. Uh, so, do. so Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? Yes, and we have a new patron, uh, Mad Fartigan. Welcome. Oh. I love that name. <laughs> I think that's great. Hello. Yes, thank you for supporting the show and love your username. Thank you very much. Um, we also heard from our friend Melinda when we posted a clip from Martin showing the home invasion scene. And right. She wrote, Reasons I have about 15 different weapons by my bed, to which Rachel replied, And five of them are cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Can't say I blame her at all. On Powder, the opinion was split on this one, so Tim O'Donnell got in touch to say Powder is a ripping film ahead of its time, more like a Twilight Zone scenario. Ah, yeah. I mean, I, I do agree it is a bit ahead of its time, you know, much before all those superhero movies came out. Mm, yeah, and the intent is there, I think. It's just we didn't quite see success in the execution. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. You could see what it was trying to be. Mm. And of course, we heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Oh, hello, Serge. And he says, full disclosure, I did not rewatch Powder before listening to this week's episode of Movie Oubliette because I watched it 10 years ago and I hated, absolutely hated it. Oh, wow. The story is embarrassingly <laughs> self-important and asinine, and that was before I learned about the director's crimes. Whoa, Oof. that's scathing. Yeah. Wow. Yep, S stern stuff. So Serge did not subject himself to powder again. And I don't say I blame him. Oh, okay, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, please do let us know what you thought of the films that we watched and our opinions of them. We always love hearing from mm -hmm. you. Yes, you, and also you can email us at uh, movie.oubliet at gmail.com if you want to get uh, more directly in touch with us. Mm, yes, please do. Okay, Conrad, what is the film today? What we what are we going to delve into? Well, let's see. I'll just scamper on over to the Oubliet and find out. Oh, wow, it's really weird in here. It's black and white, and I can only see in like a fisheye lens. Oh. Nuns and people taking photographs. And is that three people tap dancing? Oh, entertaining. I'm, I'm getting the film and coming back. Yeah. Ooh, I don't bite, you know. Oh, you're Ooh. in calorie kid. Yeah, that was very, very disturbing. <laughs> so, what do you have today? 
So I seem to have clutched uh, two copies, weirdly, and they're sort of joined together, of a film called Sisters, <laughs> a 1972 American psychological horror film directed by Brian De Palma, written by De Palma and Louisa Rose, and starring Margot Kidder, Jennifer Salt, Charles Durning, Bill Finley, and Lyle Wilson. Ooh, yeah, De Palma. I haven't seen enough mm. of De Palma. What, what happens in this no. film? Well, after appearing on a candid camera prank show in which she pretends to be a blind woman who undresses in a changing room with no walls, <laughs> French-Canadian model Danielle goes on a date with the prank's hapless victim, Philip. Despite having an awkward encounter with a creepy doctor who claims to be Danielle's husband, the pair decide to go back to her place for steamy, back-scratching 70s sex. <laughs> the morning after, spirited anti-establishment newspaper reporter Grace Collier, who lives opposite Danielle, watches with horror as Philip appears to be stabbed to death by a deranged woman. But when she manages to get the jaded police to investigate... All the evidence is gone, and Danielle's as charmingly French-Canadian as ever. Mm. Grace sets out to uncover the truth with the help of a salty P.I. and discovers ever more disturbing facts about Danielle and her doctor lover. Will Philip's body ever be discovered? Does Danielle have an evil twin? And is Grace in danger of falling victim to the maniacal doctor herself? Find out... After the break. Uh, oh, yes. And we'll be joined by a guest. We will. Can't wait. Joining us today is a wonderful artist, possibly first known and loved for her time as a writer and actor on Mystery Science Theatre 3000. She's also the star of the Mary Jo Peel show, streaming now through Dumb Industries, the author of several books, most recently, Dumb, 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 My Mother's Book Reviews, <laughs> has recorded one of the most profound love songs ever written, and is the answer to one across in the April 18th, 2004 TV guide crossword it is of course as you'll know by now international treasure mary joe peel hey. hello hey. Welcome, welcome. what a beautiful introduction <laughs> internationally known especially i love that hello <laughs> hello thank you so much for joining us we're thrilled to have you here especially because i don't know how you find the time with all those other things we mentioned in the intro you're also a regular on riff tracks oh my gosh that is true and i forgot to include it in my bio to you <laughs> <laughs> no and i do it um yeah it's a regular thing with my pal and colleague bridget nelson yes i particularly love it when you guys take on a deliciously dated educational film <laughs> aren't they stunning to view it through a contemporary lens. I mean, I still find myself getting flabbergasted at some of the ideas, and you'd think I'd be <laughs> desensitized by this point. Yes. What I really love is that Bridget and yourself are able to highlight these moments in these films without getting incensed or angry or bitter. It's just with enough sass to point out how ridiculous it all is, <laughs> which helps you enjoy the moment. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> One thing I was going to say to you is it's a small world because 
our friend Melinda Mock from Retro Blasting, the YouTube channel, and I co-host a podcast with her called Dreamland. She was so excited earlier this month because you DM'd her accidentally <laughs> on Facebook <laughs> <laughs> saying, Mindy, I have tickets to a show. Are you free this weekend? And Melinda just went on this whole alternative weekend <laughs> where she was Mindy and she got to sit next to you for a musical and she was over the moon. Oh my gosh, <laughs> because the the instant you said Melinda Mock, I thought, oh, I accidentally sent her a, a message <laughs> meant for my friend Melinda Cordich. But now I have this great idea that I would love to go to a play with Melinda Mock and see how that goes. Oh. Let's see how our friendship evolves. <laughs> she would love it. Honestly, she was just tripping all weekend imagining that alternative universe. That is so cute. I can't even stand it. That's so excellent. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, speaking of double lives, that's my awkward segue. <laughs> <laughs> so smooth. <laughs> so smooth. The film that you chose for us to talk about today is one that Dan and I have been wanting to look at for a long time. Brian De Palma's Sisters. But we really didn't think that two guys were up to the task of talking about a film about sisterhood. So thank you so much for choosing it. I guess my first question would be, had you seen it before now? And what's your relationship to this movie? I had not seen it before. I maybe had a vague idea that it existed. And so I was kind of diving in cold. And then the more I watched it, the more I realized that my first exposure to Brian De Palma was um, Carrie uh, and yes. how that blew my mind. And it's terrifying. And at the age that I saw Carrie, I think there were themes and metaphors that escaped me. Mm. I was in high school at the risk of dating myself. So this was my first exposure to it, to answer your question. Right. So I think the first thing that strikes people about the film immediately, and Carrie, in fact, with De Palma, is the strong influence of Hitchcock. Yes. But there's a certain theatricality to it with the flat lighting or the consistently bright lighting. It's not very nuanced, at least to my eye on my iPad. And for want of a better word, an artificiality with the staging, it's pretty melodramatic the way it's acted out. And I would really love to hear what you both think of it. Uh, the thing that I was fascinated with, it happens in Carrie too, but again, I did not have a sophisticated eye to notice it, is the split screen compositions, uh, which yes. I thought were absolutely fascinating. And I was fascinated on a technical level and an artistic level. And he's really driving home the point that this is all about, there's so much voyeurism in it. Mm. We are participating this in a voyeuristic level. Go, Conrad, Dan, go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Conrad, you mentioned Hitchcock uh, influence. Yeah, this, this whole movie screams of Hitchcock. There are so many... Uh, moments that just reminded me of, of Hitchcock movies. So, so yeah, the voyeurism that you mentioned, Mary Jo, it's just rear window. Mm -hmm. um, there's a driving scene with some very uh, uh, moody music that's, that's just psycho. 
I think there's another scene that reminded me of another Hitchcock movie. Which one was it? Vertigo. Some of the romantic scenes reminded me of Vertigo. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Right. So that sort of approach to romance, that kissing scene on the boat, felt like Vertigo to me. Um, and also, of course, the music is uh, Bernard Herrmann, mm. who is... Hitchcock's sort of go-to composer. So it's just Hitchcock 2.0, really. Yes, <laughs> very yeah. much so. So do you think that, do you think that that, I was thinking about when it's an homage and when it's a copycat. And I think that all artists sort of evolve that way. I think artists continually are trying to figure it out as they go along and sometimes it might resonate on a different level where it is on that spectrum of homage versus lifting so much from it. Yeah. I think there are definitely some um, sort of not improvements, but more modernized filming techniques, like the split screen that you mentioned. I, I mean, pretty sure Hitchcock never did split screen, did he? No. And and the fact that he he kind of extends a moment, which is very De Palma, like it feels very tension building with seeing two things going at the same time in real time as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So it, it's like, oh, what's going to happen? Are they going to intersect? And it's amazing in that scene where they cross split screens, which is really interesting. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm talking about, Dan. That was so fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautifully orchestrated shot, that where the guy that's cleaning up the crime scene walks around a corridor and it enters the other side of the frame because they're obviously shooting from two different cameras at the same time. And then he has to run back again because the police are coming. It's It was amazing. It, yeah, it's taking Hitchcock to a new level, I think. Mm. The editor of the movie, Paul Hirsch, he describes De Palma as Hitchcock's heir. So he's not copying him. He's just taking what Hitchcock did and continuing with it, hopefully. I, I think that's a really astute observation. And that's what I hash out in my little pea brain about, again, how artists are informed by other artists. It's inevitable. We're all exposed, depending on our art form, we're all exposed to other art forms and artists. Mm. So that's how it evolves, mm. right? Am I making any sense? Yeah, mm. for sure. Yeah. For sure. And I think there's a lot of Polanski in here as well. I think Brian De Palma cited uh -huh, that as a yeah. reference, particularly the first person hallucination at the end. The dream yeah. sequence. Yeah, yeah. I think Rosemary's Baby was cited as a big influence on that. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that dream sequence was really chilling and the husband is so chilling. Yeah. So disturbing. He did remind me of Slugworth from... <laughs> Willy Wonka, you know, the, the oh. guy that's whispering in the ears of all the children trying to get the secrets. <laughs> Very similar look. Doesn't have the moustache, though, but you know, the glasses and the sort of evil demeanor. <laughs> thought was really interesting about this movie is that the reporter, I'm sorry, I forget the character's name, the woman who sees it from across the alley or the other building looking mm, through the yes, window, mm, Grace, yeah, wants to cover the story because 
and she presses her editor because she feels that it is not getting enough attention or it's being ignored by the police because he's a black man. Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting theme to touch on in 1972. Yeah, it's very much steeped in the issues of the times. Mm. You have the young independent woman who's striking out in a career, even though her mother's clearly not thrilled about it. She yes. says, you're 25. Why aren't you getting married and settling yeah. down? And <laughs> why are you putting so much stock in this little job of yours? Oh my gosh, yes. So you have the women's liberation movement. You have endemic racism in the police. And mixed in with all of this is Brian De Palma's concerns about authoritarian figures manipulating people and creating their own version of the truth, which is very much where he came from. If you look at his films before this, I haven't seen very many of them, but before this, he was very much of that sort of late 60s, early 70s anti-authoritarian movement in his Mm. filmmaking, sort of black comedies. So this genre switch for him into Hitchcockian horror thriller is kind of where he got stuck and what he became known for, but it wasn't really his thing. It was a bit of an experiment, maybe a slightly more commercial one for him. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm here, because you guys are so much smarter and insightful than I am. (laughs) No, I love these kinds of discussions. Yeah, and it is this, uh, reflecting on the um, women's liberation movement, there's no bras in it. There's no bras in it. The mom wears a bra, the younger women don't wear a bra, which was my, you know, touchstone (laughs) to women's liberation, because that was the big, that was the big thing, the burning your bras in that, I think that's third wave feminism, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. I think the mum's wearing two. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to be sure. <laughs> I love that character, though, because she is so much like Cary Grant's mother in North by Northwest. Oh, my gosh, yes. Ah. Yeah. yeah. Infantilizing and undermining him and patronizing him when he's clearly way too old for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this, though, is that De Palma is often accused of being a misogynist in his films because so many of them focus on the victimization of and often in quite exploitative ways of women and they tend to come to sticky ends Mm. now he claims that's just the genre that women in peril is the genre and there's not much he can do about that sure sure but in this movie it's a man and the main characters are women and they are women that are fighting against men that are trying to manipulate and, and ignore them. So some people say that this is a very feminist film, even though the ending is quite cynical, quite dark. Yes. I want to back up a little bit and challenge the idea that it's just a genre. It may be a genre, but it doesn't mean that you have to enforce it or support it with your own filmmaking. So that feels a little disingenuous to me. Intellectually, I can understand what he's saying. It just doesn't mean you have to participate in it. And I think those are really good points about how these women evolve through this movie. I have to tell you, I was a little confused because I I tend to think very linearly, linear. Lee? Yeah. (laughs) So when it got a little abstract about who was dreaming about who and if there was a sister. Mm. So I had to go back and reread it and then I watched some parts over. Yeah. I was confused as well by the third act because it's like, did the twin exist? 
didn't were not exist. Right. And then there's this big exposition sort of blurb by um, the Emil character. He pretty much says it all. <laughs> I yeah. was like, oh, okay, all right. So he's explaining it to us. Doesn't make sense why he's saying all of that to her. Right. <laughs> but be that as it may. <laughs> I don't know. She already knows this. Like, okay. So it's purely for the audience. Yeah. But yeah, very confused by it. And then at the end, is she now Dominique now? Because she doesn't have an accent when she talks to the police officer. And I was like, oh, is, is she Dominique now? She's no longer French-Canadian Danielle. Um, so I wasn't sure about that. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting because it makes out that the husband, Dr. Uh, Emile, is the villain, but he's kind of helping her. I mean, he didn't kill anyone. Danielle killed someone. But I'm not sure whether he had a romance with Danielle, and but was that a real romance or was that more sort of like he was taking advantage of her? So, I, yeah, it's a very confusing ending for me. Yeah, I agree. And like I say, I'm very literal. Uh, so you have to walk me through point by point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what was your take, Conrad, on, on sort of the ending? It's very brutal. It's very De Palma, I think. There's so many of his best films end bleakly. Yeah. And I think ending with Grace's character after she's been so forthright and so determined that she ends up being brainwashed and in her childhood bedroom next to a doll that looks disturbingly like the real Annabelle doll. I don't know if anybody caught that. Yeah. No. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, if you look up what the real Annabelle looks like, it is that doll that she has in her bedroom. So that's creepy as all get out. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, she ends up brainwashed just repeating the man's story. So the authoritarian male figure may be gone, but his story persists and hers has been erased. So that's really sad. Mm. And then you've got poor Charles Durning up a telegraph pole waiting for this <laughs> somebody to come back for this body in the couch and nobody what ever will. What is he will. doing? He's just following the couch forever. Like that's his life now. That's what I <laughs> yeah. wondered, but I loved that image. I, I loved that last <laughs> image. And backing up to what Conrad was saying, I wondered if that was a statement on, you're absolutely right, if that was a statement on how women are not believed and they are so pressured culturally, socially, to have their stories conform so they're not rocking the boat in any way. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, one of the most disturbing examples of that is when the police show up at Danielle's place. And because she's in a silky negligee mm. and she's French and she's batting her eyelids and she's being very cute and demure, they listen to her. But Grace, who's in trousers and is very assertive, mm. they won't listen to her at all because she's the shrill Yes, she's confrontational. She does not back down. Mm. And she calls them on their casual racism, mm -hmm. saying something about, oh, these people are always murdering each other, meaning black I people. I know. I know. That was, mm. yeah, that was chilling, knowing that that was from 1972 and how it still plays out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I just want to quickly mention um, the structure of this movie is very unusual. Mm. So the main character, I guess you would call her Grace, she's not even introduced until like 28 minutes into the film. And who you think the main character is, um, Philip, is killed. Mm. So it's quite a strange experience watching this movie. 
Yeah, it's sort of psycho, isn't it? Well, it is kind of. And and then also Margaret Kidder's character, she disappears for a huge chunk of the film. Yeah. You don't see her until really the end. You see her in the sort of the footage of the black and white footage, and um, but apart from that, she doesn't really appear until the end. Yeah, and there's a lot of weight toward the um, detective and Charles Durning. Mm. They are distinct sort of presences, obviously, because they're key figures. But we do go down those roads with those characters. Yeah. It's quite alienating in a way because you're just thrown off balance every 30 minutes or so. Maybe that's the point. Yeah. To keep us um, not on flat footing. Yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating nugget of trivia did you discover in a mental institution today? (laughs) Well, uh, did you know that Brian De Palma's first film was uh, The Wedding Party? Uh, It came out in 1969, but it was actually shot in 1963, co-directed with uh, Wilfred Leach and Cynthia Monroe. Um, But the film also stars Robert De Niro in his first film. So his oh, debut, wow. and in the credits, they misspell his name to be Robert De Niro, but spelt D-E-N-E-R-O. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's like um, on the blob, I think Steve McQueen is Stephen McQueen, and that just feels totally wrong. Uh, I mean, I can understand something like that, like full name as opposed to shortened name, but complete misspelling of a last name. Yeah, that's just rude. (laughs) That's just rude. Yeah, that's like um, on the poster for The Last Starfighter, I think composer Craig Safan's name is spelt with an M, Safam. It's wrong. It's totally wrong. Yeah, Yeah. it's totally wrong. Yeah. It's rude. Yeah. Anyway, that's our trivia. Yes, that's our trivia. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about Margot Kidder? I've never seen her do this type of character before. No. Because a lot of the times, you know, from Superman and Black Christmas as well, she's very, very headstrong, very, very confident and sure of herself. But in this, she's like a waif. She's like a French-Canadian, like, oh, oh. <laughs> Um, like, you know, men help me. I, I need help. <laughs> but see, I was curious about that. I could not really get a bead on whether or not this was her coping mechanism or her way of being in the world being kind of a, she struck me as kind of a coquette. Mm. And I didn't know if that was a demeanor she affected to navigate this situation. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Because it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde situation with her, with Dominique, her sort of evil twin side, her id, I guess. Mm. Um, so there were opposing forces. Right. Yeah. And she's convincing us both. I mean, when she's Dominique, she's really quite frightening. She's very stabby. Yeah. Yes. I thought the stabbing, both stabbing scenes, especially when she stabs her husband at the end, that it's very groin oriented. Uh, I thought yes. was not a mistake. I thought that was that was a statement. <laughs> yeah, too. I thought that was. Yes. But but the stabbing scenes were really uh, visceral to me, and especially when he crawls over and writes help on the window. Yeah, that was very. I had a really strong visceral reaction to that. That was. It's weird because it's that isn't relatively graphic. But it's horrifying. It was really horrifying that he's mm. asking for help writing on the window in his blood. 
Mm. But that was the central moment that De Palma had in his head that inspired the whole movie, that image of somebody scrawling help in their own blood and somebody seeing it from another window across the street. Mm. It's chilling. It is. It's also chilling because the music is like, holy shit, very loud. Yes, yes. <laughs> in that scene. Yes. <laughs> It also and it makes me think of the following scenes when the woman, the reporter across the grace from across the way, sees what's going on. She starts reacting, and it takes her so long. I started getting really hooked in how long it was taking her to get to the elevator, right. and how long the elevator took, and then people <laughs> getting. Like, I, I got really caught up in the efficiency, um, or the panic of her trying to get down there to meet the police. Mm. Yes. And that's one of those things where I have a really emotional hook and codependency with it. Like, <laughs> hurry, how, how many flights are you up? Could you just take the stairs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a very tense scene. And I think this is probably De Palma's most successful use of split screen. I don't actually like it in Carrie. Right. I yeah. agree with the editor, Paul Hirsch, had a terrible time editing Carrie because it's where she's murdering everybody at the end. So it's you're, he's trying to do an action scene where you're sort of seeing two different angles on the same carnage. And it's just he said it was quite distancing and alien, emotionally alienating. Right, oh, yeah. fascinating. And I haven't seen Carrie in many years, so I'd have to revisit it. But I I can dig what he's saying. Yeah. Whereas I think here to build up suspense, I think it really works. Yeah. I was fascinated, like I said. Yeah. Mm, mm. I, I think it also works because I, I he, he sort of dips the sound depending on which split screen you want to sort of focus on as well. Because when you have sound on both, it's just oh, it's just a big chaotic mess of like, well, where do I look? Definitely. Mm. And speaking of sound, Bernard Herrmann, he comes out swinging, let's be honest, from the, from the main title onwards. He's my favourite composer. And fun fact, he also shares my birthday. Really? Not, not the actual oh. year, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, yes, you're Dan, looking thank, very well. Thank you for clarifying, <laughs> I'm Dan. not a 90-year-old man. Um, <laughs> Good to know. But the same day and month. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. 29th of June. Um, and he's also my favourite composer. But in this movie... I just wanted him to kind of just reel it in just a little bit. Just, it's, it's like it's like too much in sin scenes. But do you think that was intentional? And who has the final call on that? Would be would that be De Palma executing it or delivering it in a in the way? Or I'm curious about that negotiation between him and De Palma. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm always really curious about the dynamic of how you manage a film and you're working with other creatives. Well, I think in this case, they were scared, frankly. <laughs> he was a very gruff man of a certain age <laughs> who would take no bullshit. So yeah. De Palma was terrified. Um, so yeah, yes, Mr. Herman, yes, Mr. Oh, seriously? <laughs> seriously, yeah. Conrad? Oh my God. Well, I can't hardly blame him. I'm sure when you're at that point in your career, it's like, just let me do my thing. Yeah. yeah. Very much so. He'd kind of fallen out of favour because Hitchcock had fallen out with him on Torn Curtain and he hadn't done many films in the intervening years. So then you had all these film students like Scorsese and Brian De Palma emerging who wanted to work with Bernard Herrmann. And so he had this little renaissance in the 70s and he was due to score Carrie, but unfortunately passed away shortly after Taxi Driver. So didn't get to do it, mm. but was quite the forceful character. So, for example, 
when he first arrived, they showed him the movie and said, so we don't think we need an opening title cue. We're just going to have the credits coming on during the voyeuristic candid camera show at the beginning. <laughs> and Bernard Herrmann was screaming at him, how dare you? You have to have an opening <laughs> title cue. And he said, well, the first murder doesn't come for 30 minutes. And that's what happened in Psycho. And Bernard Herrmann said to him, he's Hitchcock. You're not Hitchcock. They won't, the audience won't wait for you. You need music to keep them in their seats. He was screaming at them and stamping his cane on the floor. And Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. That is outstanding yes. in its own way. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Not on my watch, mister. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, De Palma, to his credit, said afterwards he was right. Every time he said this needs music, he was absolutely right. So... He delivered, but yeah. that murder scene, that cue is just... There's two Moog synthesizers, there's a full orchestra, there's bells clanging. I mean, he takes no prisoners. It's yeah. full on. Yeah. yeah. It is like glockenspiel at some point. It's like, wow, all the, all the instruments that he could find, just playing at yes. once. <laughs> well, yes, and... Um, we get it. A guy's being murdered with all due respect to Bernard Herrmann, but we get it. <laughs> yeah, calm down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is glorious, though. It's beautiful music. You can sort of sit there listening to it thinking, oh, it's Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it does kind of uh, give it a very old-time cinema feel as well. It feels like a 60s, 50s film mm. um, with, with the music and also how it's shot because it's, it's so Hitchcocky. And But Bernard Herrmann is really good at giving you a very short motif and playing it a million times. And so you just have it ingrained in you. Like, du-du-du-du. It's just like all the way through the movie and on all the different instruments as well. And the sort of more tense scenes and the more sort of bombastic scenes as well. So, yeah, he's he's good at what he does. Yeah, yeah. it turns out he uh, he's uh, done pretty good for himself. He's done well for himself. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting for me to listen to you both because... I know people, my own beloved friend, Frank Conniff from Mystery Science Theater, who can remember movie scores from a movie he's seen once wow. and reference it at different points in the movie and can hum. And that is something that I realize is supporting the movie for me, but I don't connect with it in the way that a lot of people do. Does that... Mm. makes sense. Sure. I realize yeah. it's part of the fabric of the film and I have an awareness of it, but that is as far as it goes. And people who remember movie scores, that's really fascinating to me and can identify instruments. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I think it's just normal with most people that visuals is what sticks with them. Bingo. And, mm. and sound and music is much more of a sort of subconscious sort of reaction. Like people know when something's good, but they don't know how to explain it in terms of music and sound. Wow, right. Yeah. And as well, when they're listening to songs, they remember the music, but they're not paying attention to the lyrics which when they're as deep as something like loving lovers love is, you know, they're really missing. <laughs> missing. <laughs> oh, Conrad, thank you for that plug for loving lovers love <laughs> on my forthcoming album. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. 
Okay, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we present our favourite black and white fever dream parts of the film in a number of evil, imaginary, murderous twin categories. Best quote. My favourite quote is not necessarily because of the words, it's the delivery. It's Margot Kidder's adorable French-Canadian accent. Um. And it's where she says to the police officer, you have not said to me, open in the name of the law. You have not said that. <laughs> <laughs> Conrad, that's delightful. Oh, Conrad, that's great. <laughs> okay, I think I do have a quote. Maybe it's a rough quote, but um, when they're in the bakery and the uh, blonde sister says, the decorator doesn't come in till four. So it's the one thing I remember because it's a bakery and it's a cake. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love those sisters, though. <laughs> They're great. I know. They are. Best hair or costume? I loved Grace's hair, the shag, the shag that was so popular uh, yes, of that, that era. Um, I also, yes. you know, Charles Sterning is just so great. I can't, I mean, I can't name his hair specifically, but he always has the hair the same. <laughs> He's always been right. 100 years old, which is so, <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> That's what I'm putting forth. Mm. Okay. I, I was going for Grace's mom. We were talking about her bras earlier, but I just love her in her fur coat and her fur hat and her gloves that she even drives the car wearing yes. those gloves. Ah, yes. Nice. The purse permanently hanging from her arm. She's just been beamed in straight from the 50s, I think. It's lovely. <laughs> Social attitudes and all. She's just walked through a portal. <laughs> Most 70s moment. The suit that our victim wears with the wide lapels both mm. on the shirt oh. and the i mean there's so much 70s in it i i'm hard pressed to it's an embarrassment of riches but <laughs> and um the flare leg so that really resonated with me ah yes 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 yeah it's it's a thing of beauty <laughs> um i on the other hand went for something darker i went for the cynicism the uh, oh. the anti-authoritarianism, uh, but the sense that it's all futile and the authorities will win in the end. That feels very Watergate, very seventies. Oh, Touche, right. Conrad. My goodness. Mm. Favorite scene. I thought it was so wild and so hilarious and so gruesome that they put the guy in the fold-out bed. Oh, the couch. <laughs> yes. That he fits in yeah. the <laughs> yeah. and they they have to. There's a moment where it catches, they can't quite get it in there, but the, damn it, they go right in for it again. And that actor had to have been still in there because there's no cutaway and they managed to get no. it down and they put the pillows on it. That to me yeah. I, has stuck with me. It just registered so visually with me and how they did that scene. I'm really... Really curious how they did that scene. Yeah, I, I read yeah. there was some contention whether that was actually possible as well. So they that's why they did it in oh. one shot, so that they could prove, yes, a body does in fact fit in the fold-out couch. And he's a, he's a slim fellow, so you can kind of get there, you know? Like, mm. it's, it's feasible. Yeah. But when they go back and they keep working at it, and then... The one beef I had that I is that there's only the one blood stain on the back, mm. 
And it seems like once you get to the end where Charles Durney is looking at it from afar, it seems like it would be pretty saturated by that. I mean, what do I know from murders? <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite one we've sort of mentioned is the split screen cleanup and the police coming. I just thought it was such a great use of split screen and so suspenseful. And the moment where Emil crosses over from one side to the other and then back again. Yeah. It's, it's just delicious. I like yeah. It. yeah, that was my pick as well. Um, it's also like, yeah, like you mentioned, Mary Jo, like the, just tension building because you've got um, Grace just arguing with these policemen, trying to get them to go up and investigate. And then in the meantime, you've got um, Emil doing his clean up and he's got a spray and wipe out and and then Danielle in, in the bathroom doing her makeup and and it's got that um the mirror you know uh, Conrad you always mm. mentioned with mirrors having a split in the middle uh, it's like oh foreshadowing mm. two personalities kind yeah, of thing so like there's a lot going on most cliche moment I mean it's sitting right there it's the evil twin isn't it <laughs> yeah yes. yeah the evil twin yeah. but also like the twist of oh there wasn't an evil twin. It was it was just her. All along. Split personality twist. Mm. But did anybody buy that? Because when she's talking to us, her sister, quote unquote, and she opens the door and you see the silhouette of another head, it's quite clearly one of those like Barbie makeup styling heads. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. In the silhouette. I didn't buy it at all. Yeah, uh, I I did. I did. Yeah, so De Palma okay. is just trying to uh, make a ruse out of it? or Yeah, yeah. I think so. What about you, Dan, for cliche? Uh, my cliche is uh, journalists can just easily push their way into crime scenes and uh, just wander around and touch everything. And wh- Why does this happen to movies? <laughs> it's very true. Best special effect. Okay, for the next two categories, it's just... Just me and Dan. So, Dan, did you have a favourite special effect in the movie? Uh, I was quite shocked by the gore, actually. Uh, Even though Mm. it is 70s paint blood. (laughs) So, very Mm. opaque and not blood-looking. Yes. The scene where where Danielle sort of slashes Philip's cheek, it's horrifying. Mm. It looks disgusting. (laughs) Really, really good gore effect. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing I wrote down as well. It's really, you don't see it very clearly and for very long, but it's just flapping around all over yeah. the place. And just the, the thought of somebody stabbing a knife through your mouth. Oh, yeah. horrible. Horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Favourite sound effect. Uh, my favourite sound in the movie is the garden shears jump scare. Oh, right. Yes. It's really cheesy. The guy isn't even really cutting anything. He's no. just sort of pretending to. But then this is a, like a, a commune for people who are have mental health problems. Mm. So that kind of makes sense. Although why he's free to do it at night, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, it's a nice metal, screepy, loud <laughs> noise that comes out of nowhere and makes you jump off your seat. Yeah. Most funniest moment. I really enjoyed the um, bakery scene, that little bit of momentary <laughs> levity, and I'm a huge fan of Olympia Dukakis. Yes. So to see her, and I think she is uncredited oh, right. in that. Yeah, it's a very early role for her, but she's hilarious as bakery lady number two. <laughs> yes, yeah. And how I started laughing when it took so long for 
her sister, I think, is doing the decorating, and she's never done it before because that's the whole thing. The decorator <laughs> isn't there, flow, and the yeah. hand is just so, so, so long. And then the hand reaches out to help move it along. Yeah, I thought yeah, that was yeah. a, a lovely little scene. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, mine is another cake-related moment. It's when <laughs> Grace is so excited that she's found proof of Danielle and Dominique that oh, she rushes out with the cake yeah. and promptly drops it on Dr. Emil's foot. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yes. <laughs> and if you look closely, William Finley breaks character <gasps> at the moment. It splats onto his shoe. Okay, now I do have to go oh. watch it again. Yeah, he laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> Cut, we'll keep yeah. it. <laughs> Move on. We haven't got another cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and that's our Moobly Award. Yes. Hi, I'm Sandy King Carpenter, producer of movies like They Live, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Hey, it's the final verdict. Uh, should Brian the Palmer's sisters from 1972 be freed from the darkness to guest on as many peeping Tom game shows as it likes <laughs> and be loved by the masses? Or should it be stabbed on its birthday and be shuffled back into the void of the oubliette, <laughs> wow. never to be seen again? Mary Jo. Sisters. I think it should be unearthed from, released from the oubliette, but that game show setup was so wild to me, and I completely <laughs> no. forgot to mention it in our conversation, but that's my, that's my verdict, because I want to go revisit it. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I would have to agree. It's a fascinating film. It's a, a wonderful homage to Hitchcock, but it builds on Hitchcock. I think it's it's more interesting than Carrie, although Carrie's the more famous and more pleasing movie. I think Bernard Herrmann's music is wild, but never dull. <laughs> and um, Margot Kidder is is wonderful as the, the main character. And Jennifer Salt, too. So it's a, a great female-led film. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it's a, a classic. I definitely recommend it to people. Mm, what about you, Dan? Yeah, I haven't seen enough Brian De, De Palma movies. I think I want to watch more of his films. They're very, this movie in particular is very curious. Like, I just never knew mm. what was going to happen next. Like, oh, they've killed the main character and there's this new character and there's this new thing and then they go to the institution at the end. It's like, well, and there's a fever dream. It's like, okay, <laughs> this is happening. Uh, I was just uh, always intrigued. Uh, Dan, I'm sorry. Everything. I want you to w write the IMDB entry. The way you just said it is just <laughs> the long and the short of it. Yeah. So yeah. uh, it was a very, very interesting film to me. Uh, and and I, I liked that it was kind of rough around the edges. Like there are moments where the sound was terrible or like things weren't <laughs> quite edited right. The, the, the murder scene in the end was really weird and clumsy with three people piled on top of each other. Like, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I think that's but, a really yeah. good point. And I think that's something that really hooked me is the slightly, I'm sorry, I don't mean to delay us, but um, no, no, or course. commandeer the conversation, but there was something sort of run and gun and uh, low budgety about it that really appealed mm. to me, working within those confines, which I appreciate. Yes. And I could yes, be mistaken. Yeah. It just had that feel. 
Yeah, mm. I, 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 I totally agree. And, and sort of using innovation with sort of minimal means, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, well said. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what we think. But let's check in with the patrons to find out what they thought. Mm. Hello, Hal. What are you doing, Conrad? Well, I'm, I'm asking you for the verdict, please. <laughs> yes. Our patrons have decided to set the film free. Ah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so Eddie Coulter says this film is a must-see for De Palma fans as it contains all the hallmarks you'll see in his later films, especially the ones from the 80s. The less said about the 2006 remake, the better. Oh, yes, there was a remake, wasn't there? Apparently <laughs> yeah, it so. It was terrible, I, yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah, I looked it up. It looks terrible. It wasn't completely praised, though. Filippo said, tough decision but set them free. Oh. And then Isaac went on a whole journey of discovery. <laughs> I'm 30 minutes into this film and have zero idea where any of this is going. It's so tense, so surprising, with captivating performances and really slick framing and editing. Leaving this in the vault would be a crime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he goes on at great length. He enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yes, he was really thrilled with it, which is great. And Chazilla said, Isaac summed up what I was thinking, but couldn't quite put into words. Thanks, Isaac. De Palma <laughs> rocks. What a mind scramble. I'm probably going to have to watch this one five more times just to figure out if it really happened or not. And yeah. five more to figure out what it was really all about. Thank you for finding such awesome movies. Aww. Definitely led it out of the oubliette to break more people's brains. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a hit. It is. Okay, we're letting that uh, this pair of conjoined twins <laughs> fly free. <laughs> Off you go, sisters. Be free, be free. <laughs> well, Mary Jo, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast with us today. Where can people find more of your delightful content and follow you online and so on? Thank you. You are so sweet. I have had the best time with you both. Uh, the Mary Jo Peel Show streams uh, go to Dumb Dash Industries. I have a monthly streaming show and you might find, you will find Rift Tracks at rifttracks.com, which I do with the, my pal Bridget Nelson. And um, check out my book if you're so inclined, Dumb, 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 My Mother's Book Reviews. It's a memoir. Yeah, it's it's a memoir of the book review or the books that my mom read. And she was very opinionated about right. books. I just, I just love the whole concept. Of oh, I'm so that Yeah, I'm, I, I'm so glad. Yeah, she gave me a lot of fodder. She died in 2014 and we found this card catalog after she died and it just um just an embarrassment of riches and made me love <laughs> wow. her and understand her all the more so that's my pitch thanks you guys yes well thanks so much and yes everyone check out all of that stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> i saw that hand gesture conrad all of it <laughs> all of it this wide-ranging portfolio what i love is that so many people said during the pandemic this is your opportunity to write a book and it looks from the timing of publication it looks like you actually did yeah i had started it it took me so long it took i started it in 2017 but yes i was able to hunker down once the pandemic started uh -huh. yeah 
And listeners, if you want to keep up with Movie Oubliette, you can find us on all social media platforms as Movie Oubliette. And uh, you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if, like Mad Fartigan, you'd like to support the show, then head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can get access to extended portions of the show, nominate films to be featured in future episodes. And for $5, you can participate in the final vote which could even swing the proceedings. Mm. Who knows? Mm. And for $10, you can be an executive producer and get exclusive behind-the-scenes sneak peeks like Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton, and Dr. Doggy. Thanks to everybody who is supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Yes, yes. And I love the discussions uh, we're having in, mm. in our Patreon as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. It's quite fun to see them all talking amongst themselves. It's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. We've created exactly. a community. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've also got merchandise on Redbubble and a YouTube channel uh, with a, a number of video essays and recorded live streamed panels. Yes, which we might be doing some more stuff for Iconic on this year as well. We oh, shall yeah. see. Look out for that. Mm. Yeah. So, Conrad. Movie reveal. What are we going to discuss in our next episode? Well, we're escaping the 70s and thrusting forward into my favourite decade, the 90s. And changing genres to sci-fi, we'll be doing the 1994 American science fiction horror movie... The Puppet Masters. Ah, oh, I got so confused when this movie was mentioned uh, because I thought oh. uh, we were going to do... Puppet Masters, which is a completely different franchise. Uh, oh, well, I think yeah. it's called the or Puppet Master. I can't remember. It's 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 one of those franchises that just keeps having sequel after sequel after sequel. I don't know who's right. watching them, um, but yeah. <laughs> and then I realized I hadn't even seen that franchise, and I was thinking of Wishmaster, which is a completely different <laughs> set of movies. So. <laughs> I have not seen this, The Puppet Masters. Oh, okay. I have, a uh, very long time ago on video, haven't seen it since, so I'm intrigued to watch it again and also excited to be joined by a returning guest who nominated this film ah, to cover. Yes, so yes. should be fun. Great. So can you specify which movie this one was? <laughs> what year? So this is... <laughs> It's the 1994 science fiction one about an alien invasion. It's directed by Stuart Orm. Or, okay. Or May, maybe? Okay. Uh, with uh, a screenplay by Ted Elliott, Terry Rossio, and David S. Goyer from Robert A. Heinlein's original book. And it stars Donald Sutherland, oh. Eric Tal, Julie Warner, and Yafet Kotto of Alien right. fame. Right, so. right. Yeah. Looking forward to Should this be one. Fun. Yes. Yeah. Okay, listeners. Uh, thanks again to Mary Jo Peel for joining us on this episode. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Fare thee well, all. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie, But you have not said open up in the name of the law. You have not said that.